0: Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast, This is Carolyn Grace speaking, content writer at LRN and co-producer of the podcast. As we prepare for season nine, we're sharing some of our favorite conversations from season eight. This week features John Drimmer, a partner at the law firm Paul Hastings. John spoke with our host, Susan Divers, about recent guidance from the U.S. Department of Justice and how DOJ policy impacts corporate compliance programs and ethical culture.
2: Enjoy the discussion. Good afternoon. From time to time, but particularly in the last few years, federal regulators have provided detailed guidance on what they expect to see in ethics and compliance programs when companies present them as a defense to misconduct inquiries or investigations. What do the recent flurry of reports, policies, and guidance mean for compliance professionals? How should they be applied to improve ENC programs? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Divers, Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices at LRN. And today, I'm joined by John Drimmer, a partner at the international law firm of Paul Hastings. We're going to talk about the recent DOJ guidance and policy impacting corporate compliance programs and ethical culture and hopefully help everyone understand what it is and how they should apply it to their programs. John is a real expert as well as a friend in this space. He has the unusual distinction of serving in three of the principal seats that affect ethics and compliance, once as a federal prosecutor at DOJ, another time as a chief ethics and compliance officer and deputy general counsel for a large mining company, and now as an ethics and compliance advocate with a leading law firm. John, thanks so much for joining me at Principled Podcast.
3: Oh, thanks, Susan. It's uh, great to be with you.
2: Super. Well, let's jump right in. Last week, We saw a new policy come out of the Department of Justice that both Lisa Monaco and also Ken Polite have talked about with great emphasis. We've also seen the report come out of the Sentencing Commission about their 30 years of accomplishments. And we've also seen some major guidance in the last two years. Can you put it in perspective for us and talk about how it fits together? And how they interplay and then we can jump in and start figuring out what they mean.
3: Yeah, no, happy to do it. So let me take each one in sequence. So what we saw come down from the deputy attorney general was a new policy memo. And in essence, what that means is policies are, they are the rules that apply to federal prosecutors and prosecuting entities around the country. They are the standards that are going to be applied. Guidance, which is something that we see come out in in a number of different ways through formal guidance, as well as through statements and speeches and other informal approaches. This is basically how those rules are interpreted, how prosecutors should be thinking about the application of those policies as they're applied to any given circumstance. And then finally reports, and you mentioned the Sentencing Commission's 30-year look back, those are more general, and they are—they do tend to come out for transparency purpose. They're often retrospective, like the Sentencing Commission report, but they generally talk about how these rules have been applied. So policies are the rules, the guidance effectively aids in their interpretation, and the reports generally are a bit of a look back as to how they have been applied to date.
2: That's really helpful. It really helps me put all of those in perspective. Talk a little bit more then about the policies and the guidance, are they mandatory? Are they voluntary?
3: Well, for prosecutors, they're mandatory. So when you look at the policies, this is effectively how prosecutors are to approach any given situation. It is a directive to them in terms of how it is they should go about doing their jobs. And, and I'll tell you, you know, it's critical. It's critical for chief compliance officers to understand those types of initiatives, those types of emphases. It's critical to prosecutors as well as they get that direction in terms of what they should be focusing on. So they're really, it's a very important part of the process in helping to shape how investigations are run and scoped from the government's end and what can be expected from the, on the company side as well for chief compliance officers.
2: But it's not technically a rule, if I'm correct, but it sounds like you strongly recommend that ethics and compliance professionals pay great attention to it.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. It's not a regulation. It isn't something that goes through a formal regulatory process. It's not the equivalent of a law. It's a direction. It's a directive that's basically given. And so it doesn't have the force of law, but it is a very important set of instruments to understand the relevant DOJ policies, the justice manual. So yeah, that's a fair assessment. I do strongly recommend understanding it in detail, but it isn't technically a law or a regulation.
2: And if I understand correctly, and I've been in this situation myself too, as a chief ethics compliance officer, if there's a misconduct inquiry or investigation and 95% of those are resolved without prosecution, or probably more, basically, you'll be asked to come in and meet with the Department of Justice prosecutors, possibly the SEC too. And part of that is talking about your ethics and compliance program. Can you put that in context and explain why they want you to do that and how you should do it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what they're really looking for is a discussion of, A, what the compliance program was at the time of the incident in question and, and where it is today at the time of charging. It's really both time periods are really quite important to them. And they wanna understand how with a compliance program, the issue or event might have occurred, but they also wanna understand what changes have been made to improve its effectiveness uh, since that time period. And often, you know, given the way that investigations go and timelines, there may be a good bit of time between the original incident and the time a formal compliance program presentation is ultimately made. And in making that presentation, the guidance, the policies, these are incredibly important in shaping the factors that you're ultimately going to present on. But the real tip is not just presenting on the formal approach, the formal program, the policies, procedures, but how do you know they are working in practice? And that has been a huge emphasis from the government in the last couple of years, and one that ethics and compliance professionals should take heed of, it's not just a matter of rolling out the program, but with the rollout, including those steps to validate its effectiveness in mitigating the relevant risks it's it's designed to address.
2: I want to get into that in more depth in just a second. But before we leave, sort of setting the scene for why this is so important. So if you go in and you meet with the Department of Justice and and its prosecutors, and you do a good job, a credible job of presenting your ethics and compliance program. And it's clear that it's, it's a strong program and you've got hopefully evidence of effectiveness. What's the consequence of that?
3: Well, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the most significant issue is monitors. And if you've been involved in, you know, an issue that violates a federal law, federal criminal law, and the question is, are you sufficiently capable of addressing your compliance issues going forward without day-to-day regular oversight from a monitor, that is a critical inquiry. And so, number one, an effective compliance program in design and implementation is really important in in monitoring for a monitor. It's also important in charging decisions. It can be important in terms of disgorgement and fines and penalties as well. It's taken into account in the federal sentencing guidelines. So in the end, an effective compliance program really is a critically important part of a resolution process for a DOJ investigation.
2: So that's basically why ethics and compliance programs if I understand correctly, came into being. It's really to mitigate the impact of misconduct investigations and hopefully allow the company to go forward with its E&C program. We won't talk about monitors today, that can be another podcast, but that's something that you want to avoid generally.
3: Yeah, you generally want to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, look, there's another element we probably won't get into today as well that you you and I have talked about extensively and that is how programs ultimately help shape the values and culture of a company. So aside entirely from proactively mitigating relevant risks, you know, affirmatively driving a culture that does increase productivity, increase retention, increase morale, that's a critical component of a compliance an ethics and compliance program as well, it does dovetail a bit with culture of compliance, which is something that is important to demonstrate when you're in front of the government, something the government is increasingly emphasizing. There is a positive aspect that isn't just uh, preventing uh, potential problems from happening that are associated with ethics and compliance programs, as you've written about quite persuasively.
2: Well, you too, and I'm glad you reminded everybody of that, because that is a critical reason for having an effective ethics and compliance programs. So let's leave the sort of rewards and penalties side and start talking about what are the prosecutors and the Department of Justice leadership really saying in this plethora of policies, guidance that's come out in the last couple of years? What are the key messages?
3: Yeah, I I would say in reading through The recent speeches, the policies, uh, coupled with the guidance, I I think we can take away several messages. And two of them are, number one, there is this enormous focus on program effectiveness. And I can't say that enough. And and as I read the memo from the deputy attorney general, colloquially calling the Monaco memo, I see as a major sub-theme and as a former chief compliance officer, this absolute drive towards the effectiveness of programs. And just to take a step back for a minute, in some ways, this is how the sentencing commission's report actually becomes relevant in this discussion. And and the 30-year look-back report was issued roughly at the same time as the DAG memo. And if you look at, at the report, a few interesting statistics jump out. And these, again, this is focusing on companies that actually went through a court sentencing. So it isn't settlements, which is typically how corporate resolutions are resolved. But 2021 was the first year that more than half of the companies sentenced under the guidelines had a compliance and ethics program. And the previous high was 2018 when it was about 28%. But in 30 years, since 1992, only 11 companies have had a reduction by a court because their compliance program was effective. That's 0.5% of all of the company sentenced, and most of those are actually small companies. So most of the time, for those companies that are going through the process, they aren't getting credit for having an effective program. And with the Monaco memo, if you actually look at a lot of what the policies are ultimately looking to drive, it does center around effectiveness, driving performance, driving commitment through a focus on individuals. And so it talks about producing information in a timely way, focusing on individuals, because that is what incentivizes effective performance. For chief compliance officers, it might mean if you're going to do an investigation, a thorough investigation, you do have to include that within your scope, the focus on individual culpability to a degree that You might not have before. The same is true with ephemeral messaging, which is a big emphasis in the recent memo. Ephemeral messaging has been part of their calculus for for several years now, but here they do want to focus on whether the company policies regarding ephemeral messaging are effective. Is the company capturing messaging that's occurring on company-related devices? Are we allowing personal devices? If so, are they limited to certain apps that are capturing company business related discussions? Is there training? Is there auditing? Are there other steps on ephemeral messaging? So they really want to see not just are there policies, but are they effective? And and those are just two examples. But if you do dig in to what's behind a lot of these policy announcements in the memo, it really is looking to drive effective programs.
2: Well, I want to dig in a little bit. And just to clarify by ephemeral messaging, you mean that if we have senior execs using WhatsApp to communicate rather than company systems that are subject to discovery, then we might have a problem.
3: Yeah, it can be company, it can be Teams messaging, it can be WhatsApp on company issued devices or personal devices. It's any of the messaging systems that are used to communicate that ultimately may not ordinarily be retained by the company in a way that email is.
2: So that's an area that the policy makes clear compliance officers ought to really take a hard look at and may need to make some changes or at least provide some clarity. I want to get into effectiveness more in a minute too, but just to deal with the other very specific granular recommendation that I saw in the the Monaco memo, it was that you really have to have an incentive system that's aligned to ethics and compliance. And by that, it's both positive and negative. In other words, you have to reward ethical behavior as part of your system of incentives, whether it's bonuses, compensation, promotions, and you have to penalize misbehavior, whether it's bonuses, compensation, promotions, but also club acts. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, it really was fairly prescriptive, as you say, in terms of in ways that I think should make chief compliance officers happy. That's the stuff that we always advocate for with human resources and, and with executives. Hey, we want ethics. We want ethics and compliance included in hiring decisions, in promotions, in bonus frameworks, in performance commitments. And that's really what helps integrate. Ethics of compliance into business operations and prioritize it along with operational considerations. So that should be welcome news for chief compliance officers. The clawback aspect, that, which is the stick, you know, that's the carrot. This is the stick. You know, it's interesting. They, they really emphasize it's not good enough just to have clawback provisions that are theoretically applicable, that are present in policies and are never applied. They want to see them applied in cases where there is appropriate individual culpability, and that may mean applied in different ways. They're clear that there is no uniform approach to a clawback provision, but it isn't good enough just to have it as a policy. You need to talk about it, you need to train on it, and you need to actually implement it in appropriate situations, which is part of the focus on, on the individual responsibility and, and again, driving effectiveness.
2: That's a very good segue into effectiveness. But I do want to emphasize what you said, which is this is something that ethics and compliance professionals need to pay attention to, and it should be a welcome development to have that kind of accountability and importance placed on ethics and compliance considerations. But it's what do you do about it? As you said, if you've got CLUB Act, I think the SEC says that about 50 percent of publicly traded companies have clawback, but you have to use it. Otherwise, you're probably worse off if you have it as a tool and then you don't use it if you've got senior level misconduct.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. But better to have it than not have it. And if you've got it, you've actually got to apply it as kind of what they're signaling. But look, this is hard. I mean, it is really hard when you are doing investigations of your own people. As a chief compliance officer, this was the the least favorite part of my job, is doing investigations into people I work with, people I knew, people who, in other aspects of my job, I had to trust. I had to trust them in terms of implementing or, or overseeing certain aspects of the program. And when you have to do an investigation into them, it feels lousy. It, it screams out for why Independence is important in those particular instances. It's just a matter of, you know, investigative integrity. But it's a lousy part of the job. And applying a clawback provision to senior executives who you have worked with, who you have, you know, traveled with, who you, whatever it is, that it's a lousy part of the job. But but they are saying it is a it is an important part and a part that has to be applied in practice.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. That is really the worst part of being a chief ethics and compliance officer for sure. Let's dive deeper into effectiveness. As I've gotten to know you and worked with you on thought leadership, I've always been extremely impressed with your focus when you were a chief ethics and compliance officer on effectiveness. And I remember some of the things you did even including short pulse surveys in your investigations to get feedback from employees. So that's just one example. But can you talk about what do we really mean by effectiveness in terms of ethics and compliance programs? What should we be measuring? What should we be looking at? And where should the focus be?
3: Yeah. I mean, really what what effectiveness means is, are the goals of any particular element of your program being achieved? Are you meeting the goals that you have set out for that particular element of the program. So for instance, your goal might be you know to roll out a new training and to roll it out to 90% of everybody who on a mapped basis. That isn't going to get into effectiveness. Effectiveness is how well do they retain the critical aspects of the content that is being conveyed. And that can be done through surveys, that can be done through tests, et cetera. But when we're talking about effectiveness here, again, it isn't just about rollout. It isn't just about robustness and good faith commitment to implementing a program, but is it working in practice? How do you know it? How do you test it? How do you validate it? Often that's done through KPIs and through metrics. I personally like surveys, sentiment survey. I've always liked surveys as a way of getting information. And beyond that, it brings employees into the program when they are talking to you, providing information about their own experiences. I think that's a very effective way to do it. I think 360s in terms of reviews that include ethics compliance is another important part. So you do, again, get the perspectives of employees on individual performance, from a particularly for supervisors, from a, an ethics and compliance standpoint. I think you need to look at audit results. I think you need to look at investigations. I think you need to look at a number of different factors that all indicate on a lag-indicating basis what is working and what isn't working. But I think that should be a relentless focus, personally. And I think for every element of your program, you should be looking at multiple ways to try to assess is what I'm doing actually working to the degree that I want it to and in the way that I want it to? And if not, you make it—you have to make an adjustment. That's what effectiveness is about.
2: That's a really good definition. I think one of the traps people can fall into easily is to focus on activities rather than impact. And I like your phrasing of it as a relentless focus on effectiveness. I mean, one of the things we're just doing is rolling out a short I think it's 10 question ethical culture pulse survey that comes up at the end of a code of conduct course. And it asks questions about respect and trust and organizational justice, which as you know, are are key elements of an ethical culture. So always trying to get at perceptions and concerns and to the degree that you can measure how that's playing out. I think is really essential to effectiveness. I want to talk about in a minute, you know, how non-U.S. companies are affected by all this and also the most common mistakes you've seen people make in your long and in-depth, varied career. But before we get there, I was just looking at some of the DOJ material and I see that Matt Glavin has joined the team And now I think there's at least three or four former chief ethics and compliance officers. And Matt came from Anheuser, and he has a particular focus on data analytics. What are you seeing in terms of using data analytics for effectiveness? And what do you recommend in
3: that area? I think that's a great hire. I think it'll be great for Matt. And I think that's a great hire for the government, really bringing in somebody who ran a compliance program and who, who has had a very substantial focus on data analytics. And, and at AB InVev, the brew right program that he put together is one that's really been held up as an industry leader. I mean, I do think data analytics is critically important. You know, one of the challenges with data analytics that you have to always get around is making sure that your data is good, that that things are being recorded and described in like manners that allows for apples to apples comparison. And you have to understand what to do with that information. And so it's not enough to run the analytics, but when you get the analytics back, you have to have a program in place, resources in place to act on it. And so thinking through holistically, what the data is, where it's coming from, how you're going to act on it depending on what you get is all a really important part of the equation to think about ahead of time before you just start collecting and running. Look, it's critically important. It's been something that's been emphasized for years as a a key way of identifying effectiveness as well as potential risks you might not otherwise see and trends and patterns. So It really is a very important part of, of a program with the caveat, that you got to make sure that your data is, is really good and that you know what you're going to do with it on the back end. But, but it's a great hire and I'm sure it's really going to advance compliance thinking in the government around, around the use of data. I think
2: that's a good way to characterize the importance of data metrics and particularly stressing that it's not enough to have them and get the insights, you have to act on them. It's similar to risk analysis and risk assessment It's great that you're running a yearly risk assessment, but are you factoring those results into your training or your policies? So that's part of that focus on effectiveness. Talk to me a little bit, John, if you would, about we've been talking about the Department of Justice. It does seem to me that what DOJ does in areas like this has a lot of impact on international companies. It's not limited to the U.S., And you're in a a great position to discuss that a bit, if you would.
3: Yeah, sure. Of course. No, absolutely. Look, and to be clear, you know, when the government emphasizes things like data and benchmarking and metrics and KPIs, I can't applaud them enough for bringing in someone like Matt, who has seen it on the ground, has put into place a great program to really help educate. And that's going to be true for U.S. and non-U.S. companies. You know, the government focuses on violations of the law where there is jurisdiction where there's a uh, something will touch the US or you have US companies or US issuers. But if you're a foreign company and you're doing business in the United States or you're listed on a US exchange, the US laws very well may apply to you. The FCPA certainly very well may apply to you. And some of the biggest settlements, again, just sticking with the FCPA, have been with non-US companies in the last two years, and I, I don't want to limit this to the FCPA because The memo from Lisa Monty, it's not limited to the FCPA, but it will extend to throughout the criminal division. And so whether it's antitrust or healthcare fraud or other areas that the criminal division might oversee, you know, this is gonna apply to companies regardless of whether they're U.S. or non-U.S. depending on the jurisdictional component. So it's a very important part for all companies doing business in the United States, not just U.S. companies.
2: And I think sometimes people forget how broad that actually is. People sort of think, okay, there's U.S. companies, there's French companies, there's Indian companies. But if you're doing business here or you're using the banking system, then you are basically within the ambit of U.S. jurisdiction if you commit bribery violations or antitrust or sanctions violations or whatever they happen to be. So it really is a very broad net and I think for that reason, I think the guidance has driven the evolution of, of ethics and compliance programs globally, not just in the U.S. Is that your sense, too?
3: Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. I think if you look around the world, whether it's the U.K. or France or throughout Latin America, for those governments that have formally put out you know, either guidances or they've integrated into their laws... What compliance programs ought to look like. I mean, it really looks a lot like what the Department of Justice and the SEC have put out, which, of course, is premised on a sentencing, you know, sentencing guidelines foundation. But really, it is driving global compliance processes and programs around the world, even for those companies that don't touch the U.S., even in their home jurisdictions. It's it's driving very similar approaches and ways of thinking about compliance.
2: Yes, and I think if if anybody needs proof of that, then they should read the Glencore of CPA settlement, which I was just looking at, which is a a huge fine for anti-bribery for basically a non-US company. But we're starting to run out of time. I could do this all day, as you know. But let's wrap up with, given your unique perspective, having sat in all of the key positions, what are the most common mistakes you see people make in ethics and compliance programs? And if you can relate some of those to the guidance, that would be great.
3: Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, it isn't really understanding and looking to integrate into programs what drives an ethical culture. And we talked before about the absolute importance of organizational justice as one of the key drivers and thinking about how that should get integrated into your program. And Another is managerial modeling. And truthfully, what people seem to often forget is that you know, most employees look at their supervisors and maybe their supervisors' supervisors as the company, they look at them as management. And so focusing on quote unquote tone from the top from the most senior leaders of the company to the exclusion of direct supervisors and middle managers, I think is often a mistake. And so driving behaviors expected of managers is critically important. I think people also ignore the absolute singular importance of confidence in internal reporting mechanisms and hotlines, which is often a proxy for whether your culture of compliance is strong and whether organizational justice exists, whether uh, managerial modeling is occurring. But I think beyond that, you know, we've talked about the focus on effectiveness, and I think too often you do see compliance programs that, that really are driving towards activities and robustness and metrics and numbers that don't take into account is it really working in practice? And I do think that has to be, especially in light of the guidance, which talks about culture, it talks about effectiveness, it focuses on effectiveness. I think that's got to be a a critical emphasis for any program. And and I think a lot of programs aren't sufficiently mature in, in that particular aspect, which may be why this guidance or this policy is coming out now.
2: So it sounds like if if you were advising, let's say, a a startup or a relatively small company that's program is just getting underway, you would advise them to focus very much on the value side, on getting organizational justice right, on getting speak-up culture going and creating that atmosphere of trust, and also on making sure that managers know what the ethical and compliance considerations that affect them are and what that means in practice.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And look, and that, you know, relates directly to the guidance as we look at rewards in terms of pay, of performance commitments, presumably of bonuses, of promotions. So setting those expectations for management along with organizational justice and speak up, I, I think are really vital components. And so if you are just starting out, you know, the sooner you look to embed that, within the company, the more effective it's going to be, hopefully, as, as the company grows.
2: Well, this has been such a terrific, insightful conversation, and I, I really feel like I've benefited a lot personally just from hearing the way you wove together the policy, the guidance. And just for one point of clarification before we sign off, I've been looking at the guidance since I think 2013. I've seen an evolution, actually it's gotten stronger and it's gotten smarter in focusing on the right things like culture. I don't see it really weakening or changing even during the Trump administration, interestingly. Is that your perception as well? Is that your expectation for the future?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, they are clearly sharpening the guidance. They are sharpening their policies in a way that is actually quite healthy. And I completely applaud the degree of transparency that we've seen in terms of talking about how these are applied, in terms of talking about how these are to be interpreted. So I applaud the transparency and I completely agree. It is getting much sharper, particularly around those aspects that really impact compliance professionals like culture, like incentivization, like trying to establish commitments, like integrating compliance into employment processes. So I think it is getting smarter. And again, I think the transparency is really helpful and particularly for chief ethics and compliance officers.
2: Great. And I agree. I mean, it's actually making people's jobs easier if they take the key messages in the guidance and are able to use the guidance to drive change in their organizations. So John, thanks so much for joining me on this episode. Just to wrap up, I'm Susan Frank-Divers, and I want to thank everyone for listening to Principled Podcast by LRN.
3: Thank you.
1: That's a wrap for this Encore episode. We loved having John on the Principled Podcast for this discussion. To learn more about creating a values-based program to meet DOJ guidance, download a copy of the 2022 Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report at LRN.com, or click the link in our show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Carolyn Grace, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed
0: this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning, ethical cultures, rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.